today's episode of Future Says, we have Nikita Fadi, Portfolio Manager at Fastenar Capital and the founder of Fastenar Digital, one of the fastest growing market neutral crypto hedge funds. Alongside his work at Fastenar, Nikita has also established the Quant Conference and was listed in the Forbes 30 under 30 list just this year. Welcome to Future Says, Nikita Fadi. What a thrill to have you on the show today to talk about all things cryptocurrency and Fastenar Digital. It's difficult to do an episode about cryptocurrency because things change all the time in this space. Watch the news, read the news. There's always some story there about cryptocurrency for good or for bad. There's good news. Recently, El Salvador accepting Bitcoin as a legal tender. The bad news is China and another country starting to clamp down on regulation. Good news, big advocates like Elon Musk talking about his personal, his corporate investments. Bad news, he turns around the next day and says Tesla are, are stopping accepting Bitcoin because of environmental concerns, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. There's a will they, won't they story with Amazon at the moment that is causing these major, major price swings. And all of this comes in the shadow of Janet Yellen in the US, of Maureen McGuinness in the EU, talking about how to start maybe regulating this sort of space. So it's not an industry for the faint-hearted Nikita, better you than me, but I can't think of anybody better to speak about it than yourself. So I'm, I'm really delighted to have you on the show and, and to kick things off, interested to hear from you a sort of high-level state of play within the crypto space and the sort of role Fastenar are playing within it. Sure. First of all, uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, really excited to be here. So... Yeah, I think it's really challenging to uh, sum up because there is so much that's going on. But let me perhaps just give you a couple of pointers. So I think one of the most exciting things as of now is the world of DeFi, decentralized finance. So it's really emerged actually like over, you know, two, three years ago, but I picked up this team um, last year. And uh, so the term came about DeFi summer. Since then, things cooled off, but uh, there has been a really substantial investment in the space. Uh, and it, the idea is pretty simple. It's like really democratizing the um, financial services industry and like making anyone able to interact uh, with some of these native protocols uh, and generate some yield, provide liquidity and, well, essentially just multiply your assets. So that, that's, I think, is one of the really exciting things. And the total value locked uh, spiked to over 160 billion, that's with a B, in a span of just a year and a half when it really became something to be watched. So that's, I think, is um, one thing. Then in terms of other major trends, and I think that that kind of has been uh, coming about for quite some time now, but um, I think institutional investors uh, and big VC funds, family offices, uh, hedge funds, Crypto escape, reached the escape velocity and now kind of not investing into it or at least not preparing themselves towards some exposure becomes an issue. And I think a lot of the people brought the matter over the line and started getting ready and some like even already deploying good amounts. So I think that that's kind of is uh, broadly the landscape that a lot of eyes uh, from, you know, sophisticated, very well-funded companies uh, from corporates and so on as a tool to get exposure to innovation. But at the same time, on the flip side, there is a lot of a regulatory uncertainty that comes about. And, but I think like, you know, longer term, it's quite healthy and it will be proved to be 
are useful for the industry. And so kind of for us, what we are uh, doing is uh, we're essentially helping the markets uh, to be uh, more efficient. So we are uh, big liquidity providers on basically all of the major derivative exchanges. And yeah, we're kind of sitting at the crossover of traditional finance because Fasanar Capital being a traditional fund and kind of crypto native firms that are uh, doubling down on the adoption. And so we're kind of, we found ourselves to be there and quite excited by the the general uh, trends. And can you tell us, Nikita, about the sort of early days of Fasanar Digital, why it was set up, how it was set up, and who set it up? Yeah, it's actually like quite uh, interesting. So we started back in 2017. So it was just a research team uh, that I created back while at the university. And we were just building strategies for crypto because we thought that this is a market uh, that is very inefficient, very volatile, uh, hard to comprehend and understand. And it's at the same time, I think very few people knew what was going on and like I had a good level of sophistication. So it felt like a a good bet to take uh, with low barriers to entry. And so with this idea in mind, uh, we essentially double down on our efforts in crypto. And so then at some point we had uh, good results in terms of models and trading. And we felt that we should uh, try to monetize and like pursue it as a you know full-time venture, you know, closer to towards the graduation. And, and one of the ideas was to, well, open up a fund and run our strategies because we were ignorant enough to think that that's one of the natural courses that can take place out of uni. And that actually helped us, I think, uh, to have enough conviction to like push through. And so we, because uh, I knew the CEO of Fasanara um, from before, I was working there uh, for a little bit and uh, we met and Francesco really liked the idea of getting exposure to crypto in a market neutral fashion. And so uh, with this idea in mind, we joined me and my co-PM as just two of us to essentially build out what's now uh, Fasanara Digital. And kind of little by little, we're able to raise a little bit of capital, then some more and kind of we're making like baby steps. But at the same time, over time, we gain like enough conviction, build enough uh, technology infrastructure to support all of these activities and kind of went from there. Yeah. And, and is that a trend you see within a, an industry as new and as novel, maybe as cryptocurrency to invest in youth, to invest in people coming from university? I mean, at the end of the day, it's more of an even playing field maybe within some of these newer industries. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a lot can be said on this, but I think the broader idea is that, well, there are still like no experts really. Like um, some of the uh, latest advancements, they're like, you know, months old and nobody has been doing it, you know, for, for years and years. And uh, those guys that watch the trends, read the Twitter sit all day long in, the, in those Discord channels, interact with the community. They kind of get the power of the community and of the network and really like get messy uh, in terms of like trying to understand the inner workings of different protocols. And so I think it's not that it is difficult, but I think oftentimes uh, people that just get, you know, fascinated by it and like really decide to double down on this and get really, really deep, uh, they're like, people that, that haven't worked too much in the industry and haven't got their mind constrained in some ways around what is you know feasible, what's not feasible, what can be done, what can't be done. So they kind of come with this naive idea that this can be done and somehow they manage to pull it off. 
So if you look at uh, some of those stories around, you know, DeFi, where some of those protocols are started by, you know, guys that are, you know, 20, 25, 30 years old, and it has, you know, billions and billions of dollars in value, total value locked in them. For example, the founder of Uniswap, like really young guy. And um, in some days, uh, Uniswap processes more volume than Coinbase uh, with like, you know, 10 employees and like been around for just you know, a couple of years. Um, so it's really like astonishing the pace of innovation. And they're like, I just haven't found any correlation between kind of age and knowledge. More often than not, it's actually negative correlation. Like oftentimes it's the younger guys that are hungry enough to really be immersed to it 24-7 that's kind of, that are progressing and, and that are ahead of the curve. Because if you think about it, you know, if you switch off from the market on the weekends, you lose two out of seven days. And after, you know, a year, that, that's like really adds up. So I think those are, you know, some of the points I would raise. For all you young kids out there listening, do listen to Nikita's advice there. The world of opportunity, I think, for everybody there. But as you say, I think there's a lot of, of young people in this space. There's very little barriers to entry, as you said, as well. But of course, I'm sure you can still learn a lot from the bigger players like Goldman Sachs are now committing to cryptocurrency to a very large extent. It's no longer a secret. Definitely not. Is there a lot of things you can learn from these bigger institutions that have been trading a lot of the more traditional asset classes? Are there similar strategies? Is it all completely brand new? What exactly can you learn from from these more experienced people, albeit not necessarily within crypto? Yeah, I, w- I would say like, I'll just make one step back to make a step forward. So I would say that from the traditional kind of firms, and one thing that they do well, especially those that existed for a long time, is kind of, you know, risk management and like making sure that, you know, they don't blow up and they don't make costly mistakes that jeopardize the future. Because, you know, uh, the flip side of, you know, this uh, ambition and like, you know, ignorance is that, you know, sometimes you, you just do like very stupid things. So like, as long as it's like, it doesn't kill you, like it's fine, but you know, sometimes it does. So you, you want to be like really cautious with choices and kind of always think in terms of like, what can you lose? And I think this is the spectrum. There is no like right or wrong. It's just uh, given like what you have whether that given choice makes sense or not. And, you know, this is open to interpretation. And so, you know, for some firms that already have like a huge infrastructure, like been around for a very long time, kind of, you know, taking a big bet on, on crypto uh, is a threat. And like, it's not given, or at least back in the day, that crypto is going to exist, you know, in a couple of years time. And so it's like a big risk, but potentially not a big opportunity. And so I think, you know, one thing that can be learned from those firms is again, like, how to strike a good balance in terms of what is good enough in terms of like infrastructure, in terms of uh, reward, in terms of risk. But at the same time, whenever, you know, you are in a, a hedge fund business or any business for that matter, you want to know as precisely as you can, uh, what's your edge. You want to know like what advantage you have and like the more advantage you have versus the other guys, then the better you're going to be like on, on average. And so like one of the bets that you want to inherently take by being, you know, in crypto is like being smaller and more nimble. So you want to kind of use their size to their disadvantage and kind of, you know, progress quickly. And at the same time, like you want to try to understand quite well, as well as you can, what's their business model, what kind of steps they would take, like what kind of model would they try to move towards? 
and then do something different. When they zigzag, um, yeah. so you want to kind of choose competition and fights that nobody else is taking, but at the same time that they are scalable, uh, yeah. because you know you don't want to be king of a of small pot and you know and there is nothing going on there. You want to kind of predict the trend yeah. and ride it. When they zig, you zag. I love that. And I guess the other big image I have in my head when we think about capital markets, we think about trading institutions, we think about people on a trading floor making algorithmic decisions in nanoseconds, really, really speedy, speedy, ultra real-time decision-making. And again, the zig, you zag. It's all about speed. It's all about different price differentials across different markets. Does the same need for speed exist within cryptocurrency? And if so, how do you sort of deal with that? Yes and no. So like you can take a basic measures to improve your speed. So, you know, you can locate with, you know, the exchanges in the same data center with some of them you can collocate, although that that's pretty rare. Then like you, you can ask or, you know, get some, you know, preferential connections around, you know, like some rate limits and, you know, and things like that. And that's all, all nice and so on. But then you kind of, again, you want to choose the fights smartly. So like you don't want to get into the arms race on the HFT side where like, you know, some people that does their bread and butter and potentially like what's your upside there is like might not be that much, especially when it's winner takes all. That being said, in crypto, it's a bit more democratic because uh, infrastructure on vast majority of the exchanges is pretty bad. And there is like, you know, big jitter and like they're not really performance optimized as they are like in traditional markets. And so given the randomness in the response time, it can somewhat make the uh, the that race more, let's say, the, well, democratic so that, you know, more people can, can participate in it as there is a you know, big randomness component. And another thing to say is that a lot of these exchanges are located in data centers all around the world. And so if you want to collect and like get access to liquidity uh, from all those places, you're kind of already running uh, quite, you know, large amounts of latency. And so, you, but then again, it's an optimization game and uh, some people do it like extremely well. And then, so you might not want to compete with them and yeah. rather, you know, do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I read a stat recently that there were five times the volume in crypto trading as there is in general stocks now. So there's a lot of activity there. There's definitely a lot of money to be made with these market inefficiency, Nikita. So obviously we know the potential here. Tell me about some of the things that keep you up at night. Is it regulation? Is it this sort of green computing, that sort of challenge? Is there anything particularly that keeps you up at night? I guess, you know, market itself keeps me up at night. That's like the immediate reason. But like, you know, in, in a broader strokes, I think because it kind of, kind of comes down to like what kind of business model and strategy you're running and what effect it's going to have. And so um, back in the day, uh, we thought that one of our biggest edges is that like we are pretty young. So like we should rather focus on achieving uh, stability of returns and running market neutral set of strategies that might not, you know, make 1000% when Bitcoin goes, you know, parabolic, but, you know, stay safe, preserve, you know, the ship and uh, be afloat when uh, the market goes negative. I think, you know, regulatory risk is, is obviously one of the largest and it can damage severely, like, you know, the whole industry. And one of the weakest points, you know, are some of the exchanges. 
for example, Binance uh, recently been on a big streak of you know, bans uh, from all sorts of banks, all sorts of countries, which obviously is not great, given that it's by far the largest crypto exchange and a lot of volume and liquidity is concentrated there. At the same time, I think the green green arguments or, or how clean the mining of Bitcoin is, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite relaxed about it. I think there is quite large gap in understanding between some of those people that are default into easy conclusions and kind of, you know, go from zero to one without, well, doing any due diligence and like looking into the details. And I think Michael Saylor did a, a fine job in articulating some of the data points uh, and assembling this, I think it's called this mining council or whatever it's called, where there is uh, well, a wide collection of companies that are heavy in crypto and uh, some of the largest mining firms. And the statistic is, is actually welcoming and much better than what people thought before. And, um, you know, even the arguments of, of Elon Musk and so on. And, you know, if you want, we can go into more details on that. But I think people default to the conclusions uh, too quickly. And I think there is like a huge trend towards, you know, greener energy in broad sense. Yeah. And I think that's always the frustrating thing when when we see these people presenting in Congress, even on a thing less complex as Facebook and social media and they don't grasp the basic concepts, I'm sure, within crypto. I mean, I can't get my head around it for the best time, Nikita. So it's a difficult thing. And it must be very difficult for people in the industry to see a lot of the fate in the hands of, of these people making the regulation, making the legislation. You mentioned Elon Musk. I mean, crypto is so associated with that person. As I said at the beginning, the main reason he said for dropping Bitcoin as a way of purchasing Tesla vehicles was the environmental concerns. He's slightly rolled back on that in recent weeks, but keen to pick up there and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think there is like a lot that's been done behind the scenes. I can't believe that um, he did the $1.5 billion purchase of Bitcoin and didn't quite appreciate how the mining works. I think he, he knew that really well. I think where the issues came from are perhaps from his investors, which, you know, potentially... Once, expo, you know, once this argument of uh, how green or, or uh, dirty Bitcoin mining is surfaced, they perhaps you know made an argument that uh, they wouldn't be able to invest in Tesla or you know hold its stock. You know, some of the pension funds or other type of investors. Which again, I think they defaulted to the conclusion quite quickly. Yeah, and so uh, I think overall, yeah, Elon Musk said that they will start to accept Bitcoin for Tesla. And then he rolled back on that. But then he tweeted a couple of weeks ago saying that once he sees a good trend for mining in terms of going more green, and at the same time, uh, when he will see certain percentage of energy uh, used for mining being green, he would be happy to resume that. And um, you know his recent participation in that conference where he was uh, there with you know, Cathy Wood and Jack Dorsey, I think it just shows you his passion for Bitcoin and for crypto more broadly. And the fact that you know, he owns himself and uh, through SpaceX and through Tesla is a testament to that. But how do we get there then? I, I, you know, his biggest concern is the biggest concern of many, many people, the environmental after effects of some of this Bitcoin mining. As Elon said, if that is reduced, then it's easier to invest in this type of thing. Do you have any thoughts on how we could potentially reduce that? I think, again, like we're already in a pretty good point, you know, in terms of the trends ahead, 
well, using more and more like a renewable energy towards, you know, mining Bitcoin and, uh, you know, essentially educating some of the energy producers on the matter on like how their excess supply uh, can be monetized and, and utilized. It's an obvious uh, step in that direction. Then we also need to see uh, how, you know, the full effect of uh, the migration of miners uh, from China, because the Chinese government banned, you know, mining. And so a lot of the miners, you know, flew in Kazakhstan, uh, Iran and US and, and Russia. So we need to see, you know, how that settles down. But I think, you know, overall, a lot of companies are working on this. And, um, you know, just purely by the nature of, of energy production, like it's, it's not always a stable. And then, you know, sometimes during some uh, periods of the year, you have a big excess of supply and like a little need for the energy. In some other uh, cases, you have a lot of need and, and little production. So by normalizing that and using the excess towards Bitcoin mining, I think uh, it can be a big leap forward in that direction. And it's interesting to note, Nikita, when asking people about challenges, generally, uh, this is in other industries, but generally the topic of the coronavirus comes up in terms of how they've had to restructure their organizations, how their products and services have been affected over the last 18 months. You haven't mentioned it yet. Has it had any effect on the crypto marketplace at all? Oh, yeah, um, big time. I mean, I think it was a, a big trigger uh, for big Bitcoin bulls like Michael Saylor to consider Bitcoin as a way of storing wealth because there was so much money printing done over the past uh, year and a half from governments from all over the world. So existence of Bitcoin and its transparency, its uh, you know disinflationary uh, setup, uh, its non-sovereign status and a capped total supply. I think it's quite, quite appealing as an investment and became much more so uh, when the money supply increased so much. And I think a lot of people uh, realized that and essentially start to deploy to crypto as a way, well, to store their wealth and uh, get exposure to the innovation and the, you know, the future of money. And in terms of, I think, you know, the industry itself, perhaps uh, there hasn't been too much of uh, impact. I think crypto historically been quite diversified in terms of like geographies and like decentralized and uh, people were quite used to doing uh, business in like remote fashion. But, you know, for us personally, like we've seen a huge, huge growth in the interest for crypto post-March, perhaps uh, April time last year. Um, there was like a huge, you know, interest from, from investors, how to get exposure to the market. And some started, you know, with uh, some, you know, low volatility type products. Some, you know, went to ventures. Some went to just outright holding coins. It's a spectrum, but um, crypto really surfaced big time in the conversations of big investors back then. And since then, like it was uh, a lot of, you know, uh, who moves first, uh, who, you know, replicates and and all that. Yeah, an exciting ride, always changing. But uh, just at the start, Nikita, you did mention a big interest in NFTs. So can you please educate me and, and some of the listeners on that and on the emergence of that over the last few months, really? Sure. Yeah, I mean, like um, NFTs uh, became like really popular, perhaps uh, from, well, start of this year. And as of, you know, recently it became like really parabolic. And the simple idea is that uh, you create some art and you store the record of all of the transactions uh, with this art piece 
uh, who owns it, for what price it was sold, and ownership on the blockchain. Some people don't get the idea how can you spend, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, for some art pieces, even tens of millions, for essentially an image, just for the fact that, you know, you have a record on blockchain saying that you own it and the other person don't. And like, that's the difference between paying, you know, having $60 million in your bank or in somebody other pocket, which is not what happened with people, like his art piece sold for 69 million. But then I think that the, there are a couple of interesting angles uh, to get started thinking about it. The first one is that, well, art is something that's been around for a while and its scarcity is appealing. And I think it doesn't take a big leap of imagination to spot the trend that world is going digital and the, the real world and metaverse uh, will start to merge more and more. And people already start caring about their virtual personality in some cases quite a lot. And, you know, in some of these games and so on, it's like a proper industry, big size industry, and that's only going to increase. So that's, you know, one thing. And the other one, um, crypto is, is a lot about ego and a lot about, you know, flashing things uh, just like, you know, in the real world as well. And so uh, by buying some of those you know, crypto banks, which, you know, now go the lowest is this like $100,000 or something. It's like bragging rights. Just because there are hundreds or oh, ten thousand of them, and you have one of them that, and that's a unique one. By definition, nobody else has has that one. And just because you have it, and there is a record on blockchain, and anyone can verify it within seconds that you own it, kind of gives you the bragging right that's not that that you can afford it yeah. and that you have it. It's amazing, and it just goes to show again how fast these things move from emergence, as you said earlier this year, to now. That's all people seem to be talking about. It's it's really, really amazing. And on that point, Nikita, and, and we are running out of time, but are there other things that you see as being a big trend? Uh, what does the future say for you in the next five years and in the next 15 years? Where will we be? Well, so for us, it's difficult to be like precise. I think uh, we generally like try to plan uh, for like short term with, you know, an idea uh, to enable uh, steps for the long term. but the way we kind of well think about long term is that like we want to optimize for impact. We want to like being able to get into position of touching lives of like as many people as possible. So you know immediately like what we are looking to do is uh, well get deeper and deeper into crypto and well essentially potentially you know launch some more funds and offer more products uh, to the investor base and use that uh, to enable you know next steps of creating something of value. Amazing. What what an exciting future. Again, another statistic I saw today was that the number of crypto users has doubled in the last six months from 100 to 200 million. So you're not alone. This is unbelievable potential in this space. It's crazy exciting. I'm personally very excited by it. And what I will include in the show notes after this episode is a link to Fascinara's monthly commentary as well, Nikita. That is my Bible for all things fast moving in this space as well as the Quant Conference, which is something, of course, you organize every year. So any final words of wisdom or, or pieces of advice for the listeners? I guess one thing that I, I get to ask a lot is uh, how does one get started in crypto? And like the, the simple suggestion is just try to touch as many things as possible. Just get yourself immersed to it. Uh, try to understand uh, how things work. Ask as many questions as possible. The community is really inclusive and by really like exposing yourself with open mind, 
uh, you can get the chance, you know, to, well, get to see uh, of future being created. Brilliant. Exciting. Words of wisdom. Thank you so much, Nikita, for joining. I personally learned a lot, so I hope everybody else did on the line. And I'm sure we'll talk to you and, and see you soon in person, I hope. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching. Now, next up on alter.com forward slash future says will be Vanessa Erickson, Chief Digital Officer at Zensiac who will be speaking about all things autonomous cars. Hope to see you there.